After months of jockeying, tussling, and sending out an infinite amount of mailers, 2018's primary season is nearly here. So we're going to break down the key storylines and factors that could end up affecting the results on Tuesday. All this and much more on the latest edition of Politically Speaking. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And tomorrow is the election, Joe. And I'm just struggling to find somebody other than ourselves who can explain what's going to be on the ballot and what to expect. I have no clue what to do right now. Oh, I don't either. Oh, look. Look who's just coming in. Oh, my gosh. It's Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. Where did you come from? Well, I came here to talk about the election for you. Wow. Wow. Asking you shall receive. This is this is just an amazing <laughs> development. Thank you so much for for talking about what to expect and and what voters should know. Uh, we've talked a lot about on this particular uh, segment of the podcast various races, but before we get into Proposition A. Does your office have any expectation about what turnout is going to be and what people should expect when they get to the polls on Tuesday? You know, in 2014, the average turnout statewide, we did not have a U.S. Senate race then, was about 25 percent. We're hoping to see upwards of 30 percent because we have a U.S. Senate race. We have Proposition A. But a lot of time with these August primaries, it really depends on local races. And either way, that's despicably low. We need people to get out and participate. Now, Proposition A is a referendum on whether Missouri's right to work law remains in effect or is repealed. We've talked about on before we've talked about on this show before what a yes and a no vote means, but just kind of explain what uh, voters should know about what they should do if they are either for or against right to work. If you agree with right to work and want it to be the law of the land, you should vote yes. Right now, it's actually not in effect. If you disagree with right to work, you don't like it, then you vote no. We thought if you like it, yes. If you don't like it, no. We we tried to keep it as simple as possible. Now, um, actually, you had been uh, kind of a star in the court case over how the phrasing should be in 2017. So, are, so do you feel that the way it's ended up that it will be easy for voters to uh, decide? I mean, forgetting the arguments, just looking at it, that they'll be able to know what their vote means. Yeah, I mean, and that's where the yes, if you like it, you vote yes. If you're against it, you vote no. We just thought that would be intuitive to people. We wanted to make sure that we weren't telling them how to vote. But when they approach that ballot box with what they believed, they would know what the corresponding vote for them should be. Now, that's the only statewide ballot issue on the August ballot, correct? Yes, there will be more in November, but only one in August. We're, we'll talk about those when they're, when they're closer. One of the things that St. Louis County ran into before you were in office is since St. Louis County has probably more different ballots than any other parts in the state, there are instances where they ran out of ballots, they didn't print enough. How much are you working with local election officials to make sure that these elections run smoothly? Um, if you, uh, as of next Tuesday in the last week, I'll probably visited 25 local election authorities in person in the last week, just making sure they're ready for the elections. Um, I've also been calling authorities. Our office has been reaching out to them uh, to make sure that they're ready. I, I really feel confident in these elections, but we will have people, we will have boots on the ground on Tuesday in case there are difficulties to make sure they're alleviated and everyone can vote if they're registered. What's your top concern heading into Tuesday of what you want to make sure that voters know? And that, and that, and that you feel they need to know. 
you know, my biggest concern is that we're only going to have less than a third of our registered voters show up. Um, if you're registered, you can vote, and we need you to. Everyone that doesn't vote, we lose their wisdom. We lose their experience. And I think the more of us that we have that are all trying to find the best solution, the better off we are. We've talked extensively about the photo ID law, both like when you were on our show last year and when I was on uh, FMLA leave. And I and I talked to him. Yes. I tell you what, Joe did a <laughs> fabulous job, yes. too. Well, thank you. And thank you for making me feel bad. I actually have a question as someone who just moved to a new residence and I have registered to vote in St. Louis County, but my driver's license has a different address on it. Would that affect the photo ID law at all? Um, would I be able to show it or do I need to sign an affidavit saying that that's me? Right. Um, under the ID law, you only need to use that to show, to prove your identity, which they're going to do with your picture on that. Um, it would be, you're probably going to have someone ask you, say, oh, this has a different address. Are you sure you registered at the right address? Um, but no, you'll be able to vote. It maybe would save you 30 seconds, 45 seconds if it had the same address, but you're registered, you can vote. Election security has been in the news a lot. Um, I know that your office has put out kind of flow charts noting that a lot of election machines aren't connected to the Internet and are not necessarily going to be the victim of, of malicious hacking. But what confidence do you have in Missouri's election systems now, especially when there's been reports about senators' emails getting hacked and all sorts of stuff like that? Well, first off, let me just say that the senator's email was not hacked. Uh, the senator's email has nothing to do with our state's election systems. Um, what was uh, reported is that there may have been a potential spear phishing or phishing attack. We have that happen multiple times a day at our office. Yeah, in fact, that's what I want to ask you about. Go ahead. Um, so that is a common occurrence. I think pretty much anyone that has an email address has probably had a phishing email sent to them. Um, that's just common. We, we, we deal with that every day. We have 100,000 potentially malicious scans of our system every day. I say potentially. I'm sure some of them aren't, but we have to treat them as if they all are. Um, I voted absentee on Monday because I'll be traveling on Tuesday. I have no concern about my vote, whether or not it will count or not. It will count. It will count just the same as everyone else that's legally registered and goes and votes on Election Day. And the fact that uh, I mentioned the Internet connectivity thing, that seems to be a really important factor in this discussion that doesn't get talked a lot about. Because I remember during the Franks Hubbard race when I was watching ballots getting counted, it wasn't like the votes were being transmitted electronically. They were physically bringing in the hard drives and plugging it into a non-internet connected machine. Should that give some confidence to voters that, you know, hacking is not going to happen in that yeah, situation? Yeah, people should have confidence that those, that, that equipment is air-gapped, that we use different equipment all across the state. There's no single point of entry. Um, one thing that I talk about occasionally is a couple of presidential elections back, our statewide voter registration system went down. It wasn't hacked. It was just a technical error. Most people never even knew that because our systems are designed with the policies and procedures in place. Even if that computer system goes down, we still go forward with the election. Okay. So what are the hours? Um, six to seven. Okay. And um, if now the 7 p.m. cutoff, you want to explain that? Because I think some people don't quite understand right. that. If you're in line at 7 p.m., then you get to vote. There could be a, a line two miles out the street. 
If you're in line at 7 p.m., the election authority will send someone out to identify the individuals that are in line at 7 o'clock. And even if you stay in line for two hours and finally get to the voting machine at 9 o'clock, you will be allowed to vote because you met the requirements. And one other question that comes to mind, over, under, and how many times your website will be refreshed on Tuesday night? I would go with 300,000. <laughs> it's it's hard to know. It'll be a lot. and We've been doing testing to make sure it's there for the people. Yeah, and one thing I wanted to mention is that there's a lot of variety of voting systems. Some are the uh, touchscreen. Then there's also the optical scan, correct? Right. Are there some uh, counties that still use, like, paper ballots or yes. punch cards? Uh, not punch cards, but we do have uh, uh, counties that are using paper ballots. Do we have counties that are using the combination that's a touchscreen that you identify how you want to vote, and then it prints out a ballot, a paper ballot that you can actually visually verify before you run it through the scanner? Uh, every local election authority decides what works best for their local region and, and for their budget. So, Joe, we've spent the last few weeks breaking down specific races like Mo One, Mo Two, County Executive. We didn't get to Recorder of Deeds, unfortunately, in St. Louis. Your which is favorite, a, which is a is a crushing tragedy. So, instead of regurgitating those points that we talked about in those other podcasts. I wanted to go through five things to look for that may affect uh, Tuesday's election. The first thing, of course, is Proposition A, which we talked about with Secretary Ashcroft. At this point, and I don't want to make predictions about how things are going to go, but the no side clearly has more money and I think more enthusiasm. So what I think that they're looking for is not just to defeat Proposition A, but to defeat it by a large margin. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what um, Pat White, the, he- the head of the St. Louis Labor Council, said at the event that I covered last weekend. You know, he said, we got to beat him. We got to beat him bad. And and this is the reason why. And I'm going to let Aurora Biller, who is a uh, iron worker from St. Louis, explain. It's extremely important to beat this by a larger percentage. Um, you know, there's already been... Um, there's already been movements to try to get lesser amount of people to vote, right? So it was supposed to be in the general, and now it's in the primary. You know, we can only assume why. But at the same time, they kind of accidentally made this a single-issue vote. Like, I have, I'm kind of curious to see how many people are going to show up to the primary for the first time, you know, what the numbers are going to be for the primary. I think what's implicit in that clip is if, let's say, Prop A fails 60-40 or 70-30, which I'm not saying is going to happen, but let's just use those numbers. It may provide a disincentive for the Republican legislature and Republican Governor Mike Parson to bring this up again. You actually talked with Governor Parson um, like about a week ago. He's clearly supporting Proposition A, and he had this to say. I think we know what it's been for years and years, just stay in the same old status quo. But I do think a lot of states have moved forward on the right-to-work issue, and it's been very positive for those states. So for us not to do that, not to try to at least attempt to get that done, to see what happens, I think it's really crucial. So I think it's important for the state of Missouri. Joe, what do you think Parson and the legislature will do if Prop A fails by a, a wide margin? Well, if it's a big margin, and I'm talking over 60% here, I think, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think it needs to get a, the rejection at least needs to be 60% of the voters or more uh, to give some lawmakers pause about uh, turning around and just uh, 
approving a new right-to-work law. I think because I think they will be under pressure from their Republican donors to turn around and pass it. And if you remember the dog uh, thing about what? Uh, it's about 15 years ago it's now? It's about 10. About 10. Even though the the uh, the dog restrictions passed statewide, lawmakers came back like less than a year later and got rid of most of them. But they felt emboldened because it just narrowly passed. Plus, it was um, polarized. The rural voters were against the dog restrictions. The urban-suburban voters were for them. So translating that into Prop A, I think that if it's a polarized vote where it's mainly um, the city and suburbs against it, but it uh, Prop A is backed in the rural areas— I think you may still get an effort by some lawmakers to pass a new version of right to work. In addition to the percentage, and the percentage could lead to answering the next question, how will Proposition A affect competitive Democratic primaries in St. Louis County? I'm picking St. Louis County in particular because three incumbents, Steve Stanger, the county executive, uh, Bob McCullough, the county prosecutor, and uh, Pat Dolan, who's a county councilman for the 5th District, all Democrats, by the way, are facing what I would consider pretty serious challenges from from Democratic challengers, Mark Montavani, Wesley Bell, and Lisa Clancy. And all three incumbents are supported pretty uh, solidly by organized labor. Even Pat Dolan is a member of an organized labor group, and he has been for years. Steve Stanger has most of the endorsements, and I think Bob McCullough does too. So how do you think Prop A will affect those races? I think especially the county executive's race. Um, depending on if Montavani has been getting a surge from regular voters, I think the Prop A turnout could be crucial in potentially saving Stanger. And that, it's no surprise that Stanger and Montavani are, op- are, are emphasizing their opposition to Proposition yeah, but A. Yeah, Stanger is going way out. I mean, all of his ads— Lately, even start with talking about his opposition to Prop A. Here's both of the candidates. I consider union members my brothers and sisters. And when I see them in a plight like the one that they're in, I want to help. And, uh, you know, if that fight is on in August, I can tell you I'm going to fight like hell to uh, do everything I can to uh, defeat you know, Proposition A. I've spoken about this issue a uh, hundred times. Uh, right to work at this point in our uh, economic history is exactly the wrong uh, position. Our middle class is being decimated. Why we would ema- why we would emaciate the power of labor unions at a point in time when we are polarized relative to economic disparity uh, is beyond me. I-, I felt like the county executive race has featured a lot of issues that really are beyond the scope of county executive, like abortion rights, about Donald Trump, about even uh, even Eric Greitens. I understand why. It's being brought up, but you know, n- not none of this really has to do with running county government. I think the right to work issue is a little bit different because labor unions and county government do interact with each other when it comes to county contracts. Why, why should this matter at all when when people decide on this race or the McCullough Bell race or the Clancy Dolan race? Well, it's going to be up to the public to decide whether or not it, it matters. But I think if you look at it just from a, a basic standpoint, uh, labor unions have been a powerful player in St. Louis County government since um, Buzz Westfall was, uh, became county executive in 1990. 
And I think that that, you know, their influence is very key in like some of the training programs. It's not just contracts. And in fact, there's a fight going on now over some proposed revisions in county um, law regarding certain types of um, of uh, re- regulations for certain uh, types of construction and businesses. And you've got labor that's been furious about it because they claim it's a backdoor effort to uh, basically uh, put right to work in the county. Now, I'm not saying it's true or not. I'm just saying that's what they're saying. We'll be watching that very closely. But another thing that may have not gotten as much attention locally is the U.S. Senate primary, which is kind of surprising because six years ago when Joe and I were at the St. Louis Beacon, the three-way GOP primary for the U.S. Senate was probably the most competitive and nasty race that we covered during that cycle. This time around, Attorney General Josh Hawley is facing 10 other opponents. A couple of them we've, we've had on this show before, Austin Peterson and Tony Minetti, have raised significant amounts of money and are campaigning vigorously. The rest really haven't raised enough money or organized enough to be competitive. So with that in mind, with an 11-person field, I think that it's going to be difficult for Josh Hawley, if he wins, to get like 70 percent of the vote just because there are so many candidates. But should we read into anything about what the results are on on Tuesday? Obviously, if it's really, really close, it does send a message about Hawley's campaign. If he gets in the 50s or low 50s, if I were him, I would be worried. And it's not that he doesn't have the majority of GOP support and granted one could say where well, it's a huge field, so forth and so on. But it has to do with Republican intensity and Republicans being all solidly behind him. Um, he, I think it's telling that in his last week of campaigning, he's not campaigning even in the suburbs. He's campaigning mainly, I mean, although he's made a few suburban stops, he is mainly campaigning in rural Missouri. And he, he did stop in St. Louis County on Friday but the other thing that uh, Holly is emphasizing is his support for President Donald Trump. And one of his rivals, the aforementioned Austin Peterson, has questioned whether that's a good strategy. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country for the future of our country. You know, I think the president won this state by 20 points because he knows that our way of life is at risk, and Missourians know that too. And it's a, it's a critical, critical turning point for the country. Frankly, I think that what the Republican Party and the President of the United States is doing right now is trying to create another Alabama-type situation. The last time that the President interfered in an election, we got a Democrat in Alabama. Is that a fair comparison, Joe? That was a situation where, you know, an incumbent U.S. Senator, Luther Strange, was running against Roy Moore. So there were two pretty evenly matched candidates as far as name recognition. No, I, I agree with you. Plus, Holly's been, even though Holly's uh, been hammered because he has not been raising money to the extent that Senator Claire McCaskill has, he's done decently well within the GOP ranks. And Peterson and Minetti aren't even close to him on that. Plus, there's all these outside millions of dollars that are pouring in for Holly and also for McCaskill. But the bottom line is, is that I think that while they may be frustrated and candidates uh, who are trying to run low money campaigns uh, often can be if there's one that's anointed. But that's the reality of the situation. So I think that, um, as I said, I think the main thing 
that we're going to look for is not just Holly's percentage, which is really more bragging rights than anything else, but as I said, it does major intensity. It's also how many people turn out. In the Republican primary. In the Republican primary and how many turn out in the Democratic primary. Now, it is not science. It doesn't always mean anything. I can go back to different elections where different primaries were ended up not meaning much. But one of the first major ones that I covered back in 1992, I remember that the Democratic primary, this was a governor's race, but the Democratic primary, there ended up being 800,000 more votes cast overall in the Democratic primary than in the Republican primary that year. And I had Republican lawmakers and others tell me privately that they feared that they were going to be hosed going into November, and turned out they were. Well, one of the other things I want to look for is whether voters in open races for the state Senate and the state House and Congress, too, value experience or they value newness. And and interestingly... This has been like a debate that's been going on in in national politics, I think, for over 10 years, if not like the entire history of the country. Yeah, but it's only become a factor since uh, President Donald Trump won in 2016, and he had not had any legislative experience. And Eric Greitens. Barack Obama. Yeah, but Barack Obama had been, at least in the U.S. Senate. In addition to some state Senate races, for example, in the 14th district race, Brian Williams, who's a longtime aide to Lacey Clay, is running against Sharon Pace and Joe Adams, who are either current or are former state legislators. And then in the 18th district race in northeast Missouri, you have three sitting state legislators running against a businesswoman. And there are a whole bunch of instances where state house races where you have like municipal officials running against like youthful newcomers. So there there are a lot of examples there. But I think that the one where it's really gaining a lot of local intensity is the Cory Bush Lacey Clay race. Lacey Clay, as we said on a previous podcast, has been in Congress since early 2001. He's never lost an election. His father, uh, Bill Clay, never lost an election either. And and Cory Bush is an activist from Florissant who really is hammering home that it's time for a change. For me, it's all about lived experience. I believe lived experience should be seated in Congress. And that lived experience says, I know what that's like. It says, I know what it's like to go take out a payday loan and to struggle to have to pay it back because the interest is so high. You know, I know that's that's who I want to represent. That's part of who I want to represent anyway, because I know our district is full of people from all different walks of life. But we can't leave out people that are walking through that struggle from the conversation. Bush clearly has a lot of very energized supporters. And she has a few prominent ones. Including uh, some national groups that I don't think were in play in 2016. How how, uh, seriously should Lacey Clay take this challenge? I I think he's taking it seriously because he's campaigning. He was on St. Louis on the air. But... You know, this this does seem to be a little bit different than, say, 2016 or even 2012. Well, in 2016, he was facing a um, uh, state legislator, Maria Chappelle Nadal. Now, and who was fairly well known, but it ended up he he won comfortably. Now, the conventional wisdom is that he's going to win comfortably again. But he may not because the national climate within the Democratic Party has changed. And so you've got um, insurgents like Cori Bush all over the country, and many and some of them have succeeded in ousting veteran 
fellow Democrats. So I think that's one of the things that people are looking at. I asked Clay about this constant drumbeat that's been going on for years, that his political muscle has atrophied, that the, the Clay political machine dynasty is not what it once was. And he had some, some choice words for, for that contention. A lot of that has to do with um, being preoccupied with hate. And we know from Dr. King that hate does not drive out hate. Only love can do that. I have uh, unconditional love for the people in this community that I serve. And so I really don't have a lot of, of time to be preoccupied. That's a, that's a distortion. That is a distraction. That's the same technique President Trump uses when he tries to divert attention away from what needs to be done in this community. And so I've learned over the years is to not be distracted by some uh, haters. He's not distracted by the haters, Joe. But but I, I mentioned that. I brought that point up because – you know, in 2016 and in 2014 and 2012, that, that aforementioned contention got brought up many times. And Clay came out on Election Day and won with over 60 percent of the vote. I think that he's hoping for a similar result. Um, should people underestimate Lacey Clay and his political machine? No, because if you recall back in 2012 when uh, he ran against, uh, I mean, fellow Congressman Russ Carnahan when they got thrown into the same district and Carnahan decided to run there instead of going into the new second, uh, what happened was people assumed that that Clay might win. Clay won huge. A huge African-American turnout came out to protect him. And that affected a bunch of other primaries. This is a story of the trickle-down that were also on the ballot at the same time. So it's sort of similar to to the Prop A thing. So if Clay, let's say, if a lot of people come out in support of him, that could affect some other races. If Prop A people, all the labor people, if they come out and decide, the ones who live in in his district, if they come out and it's like, yeah, we're going to vote for Congressman Clay, too, along with voting against Prop A, that could make a difference. Because Clay has many endorsements from labor unions as yes. well. My final question, and we touched on this on a previous show is whether there will be hard feelings after this primary that will bleed into the general election, especially on the Democratic side. One of the things that I've really noticed in this particular primary season, and it doesn't matter whether it's Republicans running against Republicans or Democrats running against Democrats, with some exceptions, is that the candidates are very similar to one another. And then the races get really nasty because the differences are so small and they're often about personalities and, 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 and kind of their backgrounds that in some ways they become more acrimonious than general elections in competitive districts or places because then real, that really is about issues and how they're different. Right. Is, is this a new phenomenon? Because I'm sure back like in the 1990s and 1980s, there were probably legitimately more moderate Republicans and conservative, moderate Democrats running in primaries against liberals or, or conservatives. Is, is this kind of a new development or do you think this has been the way for the parties for a while? This has been the way. I mean, I don't see anything that's strikingly different 
among the um, splits or among the contentiousness in the primaries compared to previous ones. And sometimes you have mild primaries and sometimes you don't. But as I mentioned, in 1992, there was really, really nasty primaries in both uh, Democratic and Republican parties that year. It did affect November. And in fact, I mean, Roy Blunt, for example, who was considered uh, some supporters of a different governor candidate, uh, Bill Webster, were blaming Roy Blunt for years because he almost knocked him out in the primary and they claim it set it up for Mel Carnahan to win in November. My point being is that that went on for years that they were angry with Roy Blunt. I don't see anything like that this time. I, I really don't see where you're going to have long time festering. And I don't, in some ways, the fights that are going on are milder compared to some I've seen 20 years ago. And we'll have to see in the coming weeks and months whether that comes to pass. But until next time, not only make sure to listen to our follow-up podcast on Wednesday, but make sure you go out and vote in either the Republican, Democrat, uh, Constitutional, Green Party, Libertarian primaries, whichever party that you belong to, definitely heed Secretary Ashcroft's advice and go out and vote. Jay Rosenbaum is where you follow me on Twitter. Joe? It's Jay Manis, and I want to reiterate that. You can't complain if you don't vote. You need a voice. Use it. Until next time, so long. 